You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. led by Professor in a wheelchair, DC introduced their team of misfits led by wheelchair-bound quote-unquote savior. The year was 1963, and as comic book artists of the time tended to work for both of these competitors, speculation is that one of them tipped off Stan Lee at Marvel about the series being developed at DC. Stan Lee later went on to create the X-Men. However, it was Arnold Drake, Bob Haney, and Bruno Premiani who created Doom Patrol a few months earlier for DC. Drake later went on to say he figures the coincidence was far less nefarious, essentially invoking the great minds think alike rationale. And there may be some truth to that, but we'll likely never know. Both the X-Men and Doom Patrol suffered their ups and downs, though once X-Men took off, they were able to maintain a level of fandom that allowed Marvel to publish a number of X titles every month. Meanwhile, Doom Patrol has struggled to the point of having the entire team killed off in their first run. So when DC announced a live-action series, many were surprised. We'd seen them in the Titans series briefly, and their chemistry was undeniable even in just those few scenes. However, could they carry a series? The answer clearly is yes. So for today's episode, we're going to be talking about Season 1 of Doom Patrol. I've got Joe and Marty with me again, and we're going to run through some of our favorite episodes. We're not going to dive into everything because it would take far too long and spoil the fun for anybody who wants to watch. But by and large, we all agree, I know Joe, you agree with me, that this was a phenomenal series that was brilliantly written and the acting was just absolutely spectacular. I have been preaching the praise of the show since the first day I sat down and started watching it and trying to drag as many people as I can to watch it because while DC may fail at movies uh, and they have spectacularly for a while now, uh, their CW TV shows have been amazing. And now this, it is a perfect set of casted actors, which I don't say that very lightly. Uh, it is fantastic writing playing to the strengths of those actors and to the root of the characters, which is phenomenal to me. And just there's something pure about the oddity of Doom Patrol and the fact that they chose to make it into a TV show of all the properties they could have. They could have rehashed another Batman product. They could have rehashed a Green Lantern thing. They could have done a million more mainstream things, but they chose Doom Patrol and they had fun with it. And when DC just sits there and has fun with what they're doing, it works and it works well. This is the a gem, phenomenal example the, of it. It's the it. gem in the Bertinelli empire of DC shows. Like you are like, I'm one of the people that responded to Joe saying, Oh, DC, uh, uh, Doom Patrol is good. I will watch Doom Patrol. And I did. And I binged it. My wife binged it with me. And she is like, she likes shield because she knows the universe and gets the universe but doom patrol um elevates the, the the comic book tv show 
It is, it is <clears throat> the best way I could describe it from my perspective. Um, for me, Winter Soldier elevates the comic book movie to something other than comic book movie. Doom Patrol does the same thing for, t for, uh, for comic books. It, it's better than Legion, and I adore Legion. I love Legion. Um, it's better than Legion by, by half. I um, see. I, I'm loath to kind of say that I think it's better than X or Y, simply because that's so subjective, and and we are huge fans of damn near all the superhero shows, and the thing with this one that struck us is very much like the comic book. It's it is a show about misfits. I mean, when mm -hmm. you when you look at the X Men, they tried to make it this show about the outcasts, or I shouldn't say the show, the the comic book about the outcasts kind of thing. But there's still five white kids, you know. The, it's it's it, it never really felt like that until they brought in some of the later team. Uh, but even then, it, it's it, it was largely white. Well, I, I'm I'm not, and I'm not just talking, you know, race. I, I really I'm, that's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea of yeah, you're misfits, but you're goddamn cool looking. You got claws, claws that pop out. You're, you know, you can do it's all these cool things. Morlocks. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas these guys, no, they are very much misfits. That's part of their charm, and and you never get the impression from them that to be crude, they don't think their shit stinks. You know, they're very well aware that they're misfits and they're, they're all right with that. And at times it holds them back personally for their own reasons. And at times it allows them to just say, fuck it, let's just do this. And that's what I think appeals to a lot of people that are tired of the pomp of some superhero shows and where you know these these teams of outcasts are supposed to be edgy or oh so mysterious or whatever, and you're like, no, you're just a very hot actor that's pretending. <laughs> Whereas with these, it's like, no, these are real right. people, kind of thing. Well, and and they were very believable, and they were very in tune with like even, uh, and I her name ex escapes me, but the the actress that played Rita Farr, April like, Bowley. Yeah, Bobby. she nailed that. Oh, my God. She, it, it's like you said about the casting, though. It's so easy when you think about some of the scenes from some of them. And we'll be talking about that as we go through the episodes. And you're like, I can't get over how good this person was in this. And and very often with April, I'm like, oh, my God, she's amazing. But then, you know, Diane Guerrero comes on screen. I was and just has, about to bring her up. And has the Jane episode. And you're like, oh, my God. God, I did not know that was inside of her. And and then the same applies for Matt Baumer, the singing scene. And again, we'll get to that later too. But you're like, I, I'm not a fan of that kind of thing as much as I adore watching, you know, the voice and those singing shows. I'm not a fan of people who break into song for no fucking reason. And yet in here, not only did it work, it, but it was spectacular in every way. And so, and that's because of him. It's because of how it was directed and written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he pulled it off. And the same applies to every goddamn actor. Well, and the one thing I will say about Diane, Diane Guerrero in particular is I've always enjoyed her as an actress and other things she's been in. But she's mostly been known for 
things like Jane the Virgin and Orange is the New Black, where she plays a very stereotypical Hispanic character, and she's very typecast, and she has been for a while. And the one thing I really loved about her as Jane is, like, she got to show her breath as an actress. Oh, her range is ridiculous. Absolutely phenomenal. Actually, we're going to start talking about some of the characters before we go into the episodes. Joe, I'll let you take first reign. Why don't you tell the folks about her character? So Jane is one of those characters that is um, interesting from a couple different perspectives. In terms of the comic, she has multiple personalities, and each personality has a special power associated. So she's multiple superheroes. Can't remember the number of exact personalities. 64. What's that? 64. Thank you. Uh, but there's 64 personalities, each with their own unique powers, each with their own unique wants and desires. And as she changes into those, those characters, her demeanor changes. Sometimes her physical appearance changes. Which is fucking awesome. Which is really well done, especially when she's, you yeah. know, playing like uh, the doctor character that has the white streak in her hair and the, the ice blue eyes. Uh, or when she's, you know, baby doll and she's got like, she's got the mentality of a small child and she's got the pigtails and, and everything else. But the thing that I want to give her real credit for, and this is something that we could talk about later with, with robot man uh, is her body language changes so distinctly. Oh yeah. And like, yeah, even if she doesn't say a word, even if her physical appearance doesn't change, because there's several of them that don't like hammerhead and things like that. Uh, but the way she changes her stance, the way she subtly moves her hands, things like that. I'll tell you, this is a very distinct character. This is somebody different and it's very consistent. So as you're watching the show, like there's a scene in one of the episodes where she's literally flipping through all these personalities in rapid succession and you can see each one without her even saying a word, without you even hearing anything from her. And it's fucking fantastic. Well, on top of that, too, some of them become favorites of yours. Like, oh, yeah. So that when you see them again, it's like, oh, she's back. You know, I love Karen. I, I Give me more of Karen. <laughs> or, you know, different ones that show up. It's like, oh, I love this character. And what's funny is that if you are looking at something like this and it's... I'm racking my brain trying to think of Reese. Oh, Split. Split yes. was another one where uh, the amount of respect that I have, I, I know his name. Marty, help me out. Split? Professor James McAvoy. McAvoy, thank you. Oh. Yeah. You let me down again, Marty. Thank you, Joe. It's, um, it's another day that ends in a walk. Yeah. The, uh, the amount of respect that I gained for McAvoy after Split was absolutely ridiculous and even though he changed attire his his performance was so strong that you still could tell who it was and so with with jane because there's so many personalities i think initially the visual clues are also important so that you can differentiate them all but then it doesn't take long because of just how strong her acting is that you no longer need that like you her mannerisms the way she walks the way she talks Mm -hmm. everything you know oh this is so and so this is this one and then it's funny then to see 
why did that one come forward? Because it's not always as clear cut as, oh, they need to transport to somewhere or they need something. It's whoever wants to be in the limelight kind of thing. Or who's willing. Exactly. So, yeah, the layers of that character is unbelievable. And the one thing I will say, and I hope that they do this within the next season, um, one of the things in the comic books that I remember is that Jane's personalities were able to combine as well. Really? That I didn't know. Yeah, was so, that in Grant Morrison's run though, or one of the yes. earlier? Two? Okay, because this is based on Morrison's run. Yeah. So in Morrison's run, uh, like to give you an idea, like Baby Doll and Scarlet Harlot could combine to become Baby Harlot. Oh god. Uh, yeah. And so she learned to more in the comics. She learned to ne- not necessarily negotiate, but work with all of her personalities to combine their powers and come to the surface at the same time so that they could do more excru- like crazy things, um, like Butterfly She's Baby. She's not crazy like enough already. But even more so. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. In this show, it, I'm laughing, but it fits. Because mm-hmm. every goddamn episode was crazier than the last. Okay, let's move on to the next character. Marty, just pick one. Let's go... I think I need to go with Mr. Nobody, because we've talked a lot about the uh, protagonists. Let's talk about the antagonists voiced by the incomparable Alan Tudyk uh, from Firefly Flame fame. Um, Without getting too much into the character's backstory, he is a villain, uh, a D-list villain uh, who goes on to gain immense power through weird science. Uh, But Alan Tudyk's performance steals the show and does and breaks the fourth wall in ways that I cannot see any other show doing um but i well, see a lot of other shows copying in the future not able to, to do detriment. as effectively that's that's what exactly. i kept thinking every time he'd do his monologue i thought you know what I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to think of another actor that i could put up with doing this and with him it's not only that i can put up with it i enjoy it because he makes it so fucking funny and fun there there's part of me that if it's like if Ferris Bueller was an evil, evil, sadistic bastard with superpowers. Um, you would have still not enough charm to pull off what Alan Tudyk does as Mr. As Mr. Nobody. It's phenomenal. And he breaks the fourth wall in such a great way, and it gets used in such a beautiful way. Like, Tudyk's voice work has always been, like, uh, to me, his secret talent, right? Like, he can just do so many amazing different things with his voice. Uh but um, I find that he, as Mr. Nobody, is the most is an incredibly compelling villain, perfect for the first season. I don't know if he'll be. I, I think he's going to be back in the second season. He kind of has to be. I just adored what they did with him, and um, it was dark and funny and scary. So, Mr. Nobody was damn near perfect for me. Okay, let's move on. I'll take Elastigirl, and that is the Rita Farr character. So she was uh, an actress way back in the day and somewhat full of herself and mean-spirited to people and et cetera, et cetera. As much horrifying shit that we hear coming out of Hollywood nowadays, it was even worse back in the day. So when you are seeing some of the things she had to do or was asked to do, very believable kind of thing. And she was also, at least in the comics, I don't think that they refer to it in the show, but she was also an Olympic-level swimmer. 
So mm-hmm. on the set of one movie, she decides she's going to do the uh, the special effect, not special effects, but the 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 effect for it, where she has to go into the water and something happens. She's going to do it, and the there's a solution or something there. Volcanic gases. Yeah, that change her into this. She's still the same, but she can morph her body. Like when when you she's s- Reed Richards. But different still kind of thing because they make her yeah. a lot more like she she kind of at points looks like the creatures from from Stranger Things, you know, well, like she just kind of blah, 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 blah. And not just really in the comic, thing. though. That's what I like, though, about the show is they do that in the show. The comic really didn't do that. That's what I was going to say. At least the ones that I'd read, I had never seen her do that kind of thing in the comics. But it works. And it and again, it fits with this idea of this exceptionally beautiful woman that was a an actress that was revered for her beauty that transforms and the process of transforming disfigures her and is that's her crutch. That's her barrier that she has to kind of get over. And you see her get over it during the course of the show, get over this the ability to to not control it she she learns somewhat to control it and then also deal with the fact that yeah this is this just happens kind of thing it's as as deep as all the characters are for me she's the character that i did not expect to have nearly the depth that she has when you see the scenes where it does focus on her and, and the reason why she goes by Rita Farr and the reasons for different things that she's very ashamed of and all that. Like, suddenly there's there's a, this profoundness to the character that I would not have expected otherwise. And again, that goes to spectacular writing and directing, but her performance pulls off those scenes with ease. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, pick your next one, Joe. So the next one that I will talk about will likely be, you know, I'm going to go with Timothy Dalton, uh, otherwise known as the chief. Uh, so the chief is sort of this character that binds all the others together. He finds them all. He builds them back up. He brings them back from the, the brinks of self-destruction and gives them a safe harbor. And he does so in the kindly, almost like father, grandfather way. Um, And I love how his character goes from like this person you feel so much love for that, you know, he look, he's giving these people a life. Like, you know, he, he took Mr. uh, Mr. Robot or robot man, excuse me, uh, and rebuilt him and, 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 you know, saved him from certain death. And then you find out that his life and his motivation is so much more complicated and so much more twisty and windy than that. And Timothy Dalton does such a fucking amazing job at just like portraying those subtle shifts, the the shame, the guilt at some of the things he's done. Uh, and when he flat, when you do the flashbacks and you see some of his earlier things, how he carries himself differently. And like you said, he's the man in the wheelchair, but like you never see how he got uh, like, it's, it's interesting to see sort of, the evolution of his character and it's so much better than it ever was in the comics, at least as far as I'm concerned. See, I actually was, that was my least favorite part. That's not saying that I didn't like it per se, but it was my least favorite part of the entire series was that. And it's very much to do with 
with the the whys that they give. And we'll spoil it at this point. It's been long enough, and there's there's plenty other reasons to watch this, so it's not a big deal. But you find out that he orchestrated everything that went wrong with these people in order to try to find a way to live forever. The reasons don't matter, because honestly, they, they, they really don't. And it struck me very much like the Xavier thing. Because, again, when you're watching the X-Men movies, if you haven't read the comics, you think, you know, this this Xavier guy is pretty goddamn nice. Look at him doing all these things for people and all that. And when you read the comics, you see some some things and you're like, oh, no, you really aren't. There, there's some bad in you as well. But in that regard, it comes off more like... It's still the things that he's done in the comics in different circumstances, yes, were horrific, but they were at the time, and and, and it, it wasn't because he was planning ahead for some mustache-twirling reasons like this kind of thing. And so, to me, for that reason, it, it gave the, com- the character complexity and depth that he doesn't have to always be good. There can be also bad in him, and he can be a good person that does bad or a bad person that does good, whereas with... Timothy Dalton's character, the chief, once you find that out about him at that point, it's like, it it really does strike me as mustache twirling. And in a show that Mm. I'm willing to to, to support even a lot, like a dimension in a donkey's mouth, okay? Like, I'm all right with that. But this was that one too far. You're going, I kind of wish they had to done that. See, and I was the opposite for me because it was sort of his evolution of a character to the point where he is now versus then. And yeah, I understand that it's a little mustache twirling, but it also wasn't your traditional, like I want to dominate the world. It wasn't your, you know, I'm doing this for fame and fortune. It literally was, he wants to live forever. And it was such a selfish, such a very human thing that caused him, at least in his mind to justify all these atrocious things he was doing to these people that it it, seeing his evolution from that to where he ends up was i don't want to say important but i think it lended to the character and to everything else that happened particularly with mr nobody like that that whole thing where mr nobody just he that's what he wants to show everybody like this is who he is this is who he was like it, it these are such human things like and it's like mr nobody has all this cosmic pro- power he could do all these random things he doesn't want to do that he wants to take this guy down a peg that he used to work and i think that like those things are just they're very touchable they're very relatable in certain regards and i like that i think for me what's going to resolve this will be how they deal with it in the next season because if they present it oh, in yeah. such a way where all is forgiven, then I'll be like, eh, no, you screwed up then. But if it's presented in such a way that you find out that the villain of season one wasn't actually Mr. Nobody, it was a chief, then I'm on board. Mm-hmm. Then we find out, okay, well then, who's going to fill that role then for the Doom Patrol in season two, the, the leader, quote-unquote, kind of thing. So if they go that route, then I'm on board. Then that's... And that's kind of clever in a way. But if it's a trope where it's all forgiven, I, I got to say I'll be disappointed. I know. What about you, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I agree. 
Okay, Marty, pick one more. We're going to go with Robot Man because as a child of the 80s and 90s, Brendan Fraser was everywhere for a long time. And then he disappeared, went through some serious tragedy. And Mm -hmm. in this show, both in the Titans, um, he was like, as Robot Man in the Titans, he was so, it's just his voice, just so charismatic. I wanted to see more about Robot Man because I know he's one of the original Doom Patrol characters. Uh, But his growth, his, his, his arc, and just the way he talks when he is angry and being an asshole to people and his t-shirt collection, all of those <laughs> things. I adore robot man. Like, and Brendan Fraser was great. Like um, in flex patrol, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but you know, there was talk of him getting a daytime Emmy from that performance. I loved his performance as robot man more so than uh, just about almost anything else on the show. The only thing to note is that, and for those of you that are, are maybe coming into it, he's not actually wearing the suit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's Riley Shanahan, who I, I feel like if we're going to talk about Mr., uh, we're going to talk about Robot Man in general, uh, he, he needs to get some props too because Amen. the the amount, and, and Brendan Fraser, actually, I watched uh, an interview uh, with him uh, where he talked about this, and very, very rarely were they like recording or shooting at the same time. So like those scenes where Cliff was like actually doing things as Cliff Steele, like the flashbacks and uh, some of the mind fuckery that was happening in some of the later episodes, they interacted then, but otherwise completely separate. They never interacted. And Shanahan just lended this perfect physicality, uh, this perfect body language to the things Brandon Fraser was saying. And he even complimented him on it and said, look, that suit is heavy as shit. It is really, really rough. And the amount of emotion he's able to convey with literally no face uh, is stupendous. Uh, And I agree. Like you get so much from just like this hunk of metal. uh, And I think Shanahan deserves a huge shout out for that. Oh, 100%. Like I was looking to make sure that I had his name right because there is a change between Titans and Doom Patrol, but Shanahan is... Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing as you were saying there. Well, as you were quoting Frazier, say the the range of motion is so limited with that character, and yet you you get so much mm-hmm. going on. Like there's, we're going to be delving into a few episodes in a moment here, but yeah, it's it's great. We're going to quickly move on. Uh, the last one in the team is Larry Trainer. Now, this is interesting. I know I'm saying the same damn thing again. Yet an in- another interesting character where you have this 50s era. I think he was 50s, wasn't he? Or was he 60s era? Him, I don't remember. 60s. 60s. Yeah, error pilot that went through this patch of negative essence, whatever the fuck it was. Joe, you would know that more than I do. And then that, for again, it's not well explained even i'm guessing it's better explained in the comic books because the this sure we'll go with that patch of essence that he, <laughs> they go through i don't know if the entirety of that essence is was this negative spirit that goes into him or if that was just a portal and it happened it, again who the fuck knows but there is this being that energy being that now lives in in that character played by matt bomer and now this is a deeply troubled character again 
and much like the others, was an asshole. In his case, he was an asshole to his wife and his his lover that he should have left his wife with to be with him, and to his did he have more than one kid? I can't remember if he had two or just yep, one. Yeah, two children. Two kid. Yeah. So he was just this selfish fucking asshole, and that continues. Like you have a few t- scenes where there's redemption there, and you have the eventual arc where he learns to work with this sentient being that lives inside of him and keeps him living forever, and 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 you have this really weird kind of relationship between those two that is, for our part, very one-sided in how we perceive it, because of course this energy creature when it does come out doesn't communicate with us by traditional means so what we know of that that being and what we perceive it to be in terms of uh, um, a morality or whatever you want to call it kind of is it a good energy or not kind of thing um, is based on its actions which is very clever in terms of again whoever came up with these ideas and and how they're putting in the show works very effectively because once again you you only you only interact as a viewer with this creature by way of Larry Trainer however you get to see things a trainer doesn't when it escapes and that gives you a little bit of an insight that he doesn't have once again i just find it's it's a clever way of playing on what otherwise could have been a trope so you have trainer trying to come to terms with basically outliving everybody and even though he's scarred head to toe because of the third degree burns he took when his plane crashed and he has to wear bandages all the time which in the comics I know they say is to keep in the radiation of this energy being however mm-hmm. I don't know how bandages would do that but 63 logic man yeah exactly so it it works anyways and he has to wear these bandages all the time he's a very interesting character because of because of how tortured he is but when you it's not a kind of torture where you're you're always rooting for him at times, you just want to shake him and say, "Will you just fucking get over yourself? Stop just thinking about yourself here." And you're rewarded for that because there are moments where that's made very clear on the screen. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't think about just himself, and he really works to try to do the greater good. So there, there's this really nice redemption arc with him, but it's never massive redemptions. It is very much baby steps, but it is a progress. That's that's nice to see. One thing I will say about his character as portrayed in Doom Patrol versus the comics, of all the members of the Doom Patrol, he is the one that's gone through the most comic book changes. Um, I think he's had like six or seven different versions of himself. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. God. Um, and each one is weird. So like with Rebus, uh, the Rebus run, uh, it was like, the negative spirit inside of him was capable of speech and was actually an entity. The original one was just um, uh, this weird radiation thing that caused his internal spirit to become conscious. Like, so like the whole idea of a soul, like that was his soul sort of being able to leave his body and become like this supercharged thing. 
Then there was the Burn Incarnation, uh, which, you know, went back to being this, like, went this weird electrified black skeleton thing that was caused by Superboy Prime and all this weird shit. Like, he's gone through a ton of changes. By far, the way he is portrayed in this TV show is the best out of all of them. And I don't say that as an opinion piece. I'm saying that if you look at the even the sum total of all the, the previous comic incarnations, they were flat. They were just kind of there for the sake of having somebody else. They didn't really have a lot of depth to him. He didn't have a lot of depth to him, no matter what version, no matter what year it was. Here, he actually has a conflict with the entity inside of him. And they haven't revealed what it is exactly yet in the TV show. But if they go with the original incarnation and this is a manifestation of his own spirit, that makes so much more sense than anything else. And especially with his conflicted and tortured nature and all everything that he's gone through from being that selfish man to learning and growing and now learning to sort of work with the entity. It's his growth. His character arc is so much more developed and so much better here than it ever has existed in the comics. And I appreciate that so damn much. And Matt Bomer, Holy fuck. Like I wanted to kiss that man before for his performance here. Good Lord. Like, Oh yeah. What I liked about the, the, the relationship with the, the energy spirit in him too, was that, you knew who was in charge all the time and it was not mm-hmm. Larry trainer. And, but you, you got the impression that once trainer started trying, they put out that olive branch of wanting to work with them, wanting to, to understand what this creature is and what it wants and, and all of these things, then it kind of softened as well. And it was giving him those visions where he was spending time with his his lovers and with his wife as well, I think, at one point. Did he? I don't What's remember. I, I can't remember if he also had a vision with his wife or it was only with his nope. lover. Well, he he he, he had back flashes, yeah. right, or flashbacks. But I'm talking about the ones that were induced by the spirit. But No. Yeah, that it was... was always, it was always with his lover. His ex-lover, yeah. What I liked about that was that when it was cut short... And trainers screaming at this thing, bring it back, do it again, and all that. He's not getting his way. And again, it's it's a trope that you would see in other shows or comic books or whatever. And that character will get their way eventually because they're going to keep asking or whatever. They'll get their way, and then you know the audience is happy because it returns to this fantasy life. No, no, you're not getting your way. This this is done now. Maybe I'll talk to you later on, kind of thing. And I, I really like that because it never it never made that energy spirit in him um complacent in any way, shape, or form, which really made us continue to be really driven to know what the fuck is this thing? What does it want? And all of these things. I I adored the way it was portrayed. Finally, before we move on to a couple of episodes. We have to, of course, talk about this iteration of Cyborg. Now, Cyborg in the comics was never actually in Doom Patrol. Beast Boy was. And that's where we see that tie-in in Titans, which is very, very interesting kind of thing. But in here we have Cyborg. I honestly have no idea why they decided Cyborg, if it was a 
licensing thing with DC or how they decided or, you know. I have an idea. Do you think it was racially because we need somebody here to diversify the cast or was it somebody, something else? No, I think it was budget. Um, So like the thing with, with Cyborg is a lot of the stuff with that costume um, and not to take anything away from Joven Wade because he is fantastic as a young cyborg. I think he plays a teenage cyborg fantastically. Um, A lot of that is prosthetics and costume stuff that they can make and put on him. The problem with like somebody like Beast Boy, who would be a better fit if you're doing the original stuff, they already have Rita. They already have um, Larry and they already have Morden and a whole bunch of other things that have to be CG'd. Yeah. Like with Jane, they don't have the budget to do a Beast Boy, but they can do a Cyborg because Cyborg's dad in the comics does have a tie with the chief. It does actually make sense. Yeah. And again, even if it was just we need more diversity in this cast, I'm all for it. Because again, we got a lot of white people in the show too. So yeah, it's it's great. The thing that I struggled with for the first little bit was this kind of iteration of a young cyborg. Because and 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 it's bound to be different. It has to be different. It's not the comics and it's not Teen Titans either. But again, we saw Teen Titans and we saw Titans. Well, no, he wasn't in Titans, was he? I can't even remember. No. No, he wasn't. Nope, he was not um, in Titans. Not yet. But like we've seen the, the the comic book interpretation. And then we saw him in the Justice League ones as well. And so I'm not saying I wanted the large, stoic black guy that's just going to be like, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. This is what we need to do and, and, and everything like that. But it still took me a little while to get used to the very insecure and at times blatantly wrong, doesn't know how to hand, talk to people even and things like that. And And part of that is because of the casting, because he looks like he'd be more you know, mid-20s kind of thing. And you got to remind yourself as you're watching, no, he's actually quite a bit younger. The fact that he's doing this well is actually saying a lot kind of thing. So once you pass that hurdle, then for me at least it was was easier to keep going. For me, I like this in particular simply because Cyborg, most people's introduction to him was Teen Titans. And I'm talking about the original cartoon show. Um... Uh, just for popularity's sake. Even in the comics, he wasn't very popular. He wasn't, even when he was associated with the JLA or the Titans in the comics, he wasn't anybody's favorite. And he became this really irreverent character in the cartoon show, like more so than almost any of them. Um, Like he would sit there and talk about making waffles in the middle of combat because that was the character he was. But for me, I like the idea that his character here has something to prove. Uh, He's trying to get the attention. Well, his dad wants him to get the attention of the JLA so that he can become a member and, you know, do greatness with his life and the technology that his dad has put into his body. But I like the idea he's tortured by what happened. He's conflicted with the changes that are happening to his body. Um, I love the way that he reacts to everything where he comes in and he just wants to take charge. He wants to be the serious one. Because you have Cliff, who just doesn't take anything seriously. You have Jane, who she could be a child one minute and could be a doting mother the next, or she could be a crazy ex-girlfriend the the other the next moment. You have Rita, who's checked out, doesn't want to do anything. You have Larry, who doesn't want to do anything. 
and you needed that straight man. You needed somebody yeah. who could try to wrangle everybody. And I like the fact that it was this teenage boy who had no idea what the fuck he was doing, but said, I'm going to do this. I can do this. I know I can do this. And then you see him go, Oh, wait, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't do this. But you start to see where all that the cyborg that we see in the TV show and the comics and everything else that comes later comes from. This is that starting point. And I appreciate that because even in the animated movies, you can see how they could tie that back to this as his origin. And I like that a lot. Uh, it just, it makes sense to me. And Oh yeah. It made sense. If you watch not all of the cartoons, especially not the teen Titans, the early stuff, because you're right. They, they really made him into a, a, a I don't want to say a joke of a character, but a character that's far no, too. Reverend, like, I think is accurate. Yeah. But when you see, especially some of the newer um, animated films that they're putting out, which again, you were talking about the how horrible the live actions are compared to the the TV ones like this, the live action TV. It's important to also note the animated films continue to be, for the most part, fucking amazing. Like, it's hard to go wrong with the animated movies. You can, there's a few, but by and large, man, they're good. And oh, when yeah. they nail Cyborg, it's when, like, he's got shit on lockdown. Like, he, Superman, you need to be here. Batman, you need to be here. You need to do this. And he's he's the one that's in control because he's plugged into the fucking world. So, and because of his character of of take charge... And so what was cool, like you said about this, is you have the trying to take charge, but having to go against the people that are looking down on you because you are a kid and clearly because you don't have a clue what you're doing for the most part. You got heart, kid, <laughs> but you still need to learn a few things. And yeah, it was great. Yeah, uh, Cyborg has a particular run in the comics that I am going to read one of these days now that DC uh, the Universe app has comics on it. Uh, David Walker's Cyborg run is something I'm really oh, interested yeah. in. Because well, we're yeah, it's, it's David F. Walker. Like, dude could write the phone book, and I'd be like, oh, my God, his choice of phrase is beautiful in the phone book. Um, I just digged him. But I do think, like, as a straight man, and this incarnation of Cyborg really fits the Doom Patrol and the Doom Patrol mythos really well. And Joven Wade also, let's point out, like, he also uh, gets to play another character for a little bit. Um, I believe it's in Penultimate Patrol, but I could... Yeah, it's in Penultimate Patrol, where he gets to play a different role, which is just shows off his acting chops as well. So, yeah, super good. It's been a while since I watched it. Uh, actually, we'll wait, and you'll talk about it later. Okay, let's talk about a couple of episodes. Again, we're not going to dive that deeply into each of them, but it's going to be just talk about some of the things that we really liked about some of them. And... Pilot episode kind of sets everything up so we really don't have a lot to talk about, but it does lead to a town being swallowed up into a donkey, which leads into Donkey Patrol. Joe, that one's yours. So Donkey Patrol is really your first episode where they introduce how weird this series is going to be. Because, like, at the yeah, beginning... They, they did not fuck around with that. No. <laughs> they they let you know the right from the get-go. <laughs> Yeah, because the pilot episode was sort of like, okay, it's a little weird, and okay, dude's a NASCAR driver into a robot, okay, this this woman is like a weird mutant, like, melty person, uh, but then you get into Donkey Patrol, where 
Morden captures Calder, uh, the chief, uh, takes him to a vortex. Jane follows suit, uh, and an entire town gets devoured. Because why the hell not? Goodbye, Cloverton. Uh, so this leaves the Doom Patrol without the chief, without any support, and there's literally just a donkey left in front of the manor. Uh, so they want to find, they're trying to find the chief. They want to find the chief. They want to find the chief. Chief. They open up the donkey and hear music and hear other things. And they eventually figure out that, well, guess we're going inside the donkey. So they convince Rita to swallow them in her amorphous body and go into the donkey. Like, that is your introduction to how, like, everything is going to be. And it is phenomenal. Um, this is also the episode in which Cliff learns about Jane's condition because he hasn't known about her multiple personalities. Uh, it wasn't anything that they have, it, like had shown in the pilot. Um, Vic Cyborg actually is one that triggers the violent personality of Hammerhead. Um, and like Hammerhead like burst out and actually hits him and Cliff. Um, they get Rita and Larry to start coming out of their protective shell uh, because they really literally don't want to do anything. They just want to be left alone in their house. It's a great starting point for the team. Uh, and eventually they do get out of the donkey. Oh, oh, um, oh, hold on. Before we go that far, give me one second here. I just want sure. to point out, because you were talking about the first time that Cliff finds out about Jane's uh, multiple personalities and stuff. If I look at all of the relationships, the friendships in this show, of which there are many that are interesting, like the stuff that goes on with Rita and um, and Larry, they're they're funny together still, in in that it's presented in this like old fifties kind of oh yeah way relationship, but it's so fucked up and weird kind of thing too. Yeah, but the relationship between Cliff and Jane is all I need in the entire series. Every time that they're together and you you have Cliff trying because he lost his daughter mm -hmm. and you have Jane that's just been on her own so goddamn long but for her, all her personalities and despite pushing him away constantly, you know there's also part of her that that does appreciate it kind of thing, but it's complicated. It's very complicated. The, the relationship between those two made the show for me. It was just phenomenal. Yeah, I would agree with that. And this is where that the seeds of that are planted. Yeah. Um, and you're right. That That's one of the major strengths of the show. And this episode definitely sets that up. It's the interrelationship between all of the characters Yeah. Uh, and not just the main cast, but the supporting cast that we get into, and we'll talk about some of them as we go through some of the episodes, but those relationships with the supporting cast are just as important. Uh, it's it's a great starting off point. Like, the pilot's good, but if I were to point to one episode of a TV show that says, this is a perfect way to display the tone, the level of drama, the character start, like, you can see the seeds of character growth beginning, and something that will definitely hook you. Like by the time Donkey Patrol came, like people watched it, everybody I had told to watch this was like, I'm in just 100%. Oh, I'm God, in. yeah. But yes. Now, for me, we're going to skip over Puppet Patrol and go right to Cult Patrol because I feel it's one of the best starting ones <laughs> that there is with the mother and the cake. 
being all nice <laughs> until she starts swearing at everybody and killing the father and everything. It was in a show that is as insane as this is, which this by now is the fourth episode. You've seen some shit by this point, okay? And so to get to this point where you have something that is so out of left field that catches you by surprise and you have that that nervous laugh kind of thing, that was me when that happened. It was like, oh, my God, this is fucking awesome. <laughs> and the story behind it, too, of this this cult of the unwritten book and how it's going to summon the D creator in the sky, which turns out to be this massive, again, like the donkey's not weird enough, a giant right. fucking eye in the sky. Can, can I, can I, Oh, go for second? it. Go for it. My favorite part about this was at the very beginning with the occult detective, Willoughby Kipling, the, we can't call him Constantine because we're still arguing the legality of it with the movie studios and if we can use it. But holy shit, Mark Shepard is a perfect goddamn Constantine. Yeah, I was really surprised. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, they can't use him because of licensing issues. And if anybody can float between all the various weird of the DC universe, it's Constantine. Uh, But yeah, Shepard was so good and scary how much I want to see him continue like almost as much as i like matt ryan as constantine if they were to give me a justice yeah. league dark live action oh dude don't, and let don't. him actually play constantine i'd be all set because they got the rights back now oh like there was an interview with keanu reeves because he helped do that because <laughs> he wants to make another constantine movie <laughs> let's do this let's do this <laughs> all right back to the episode so they do not manage to stop this kid. And so you wind up getting this giant eye in the sky. And it leads into the next episode, which is the uh, Paw Patrol episode. And the reason that I like this as a resolution to the Cult Patrol, because, again, it's one of those, well, this is it. This is the end of times. <laughs> there, there's, how are you going to fight a giant fucking eye in the sky? Well, you go back in time, of course. <laughs> so, of course. And you plant something in one of Jane's personalities because, of course, you would. And so she's the one that starts the cult of the rewritten book so that the eye never comes to be. It's, the recreator. Yeah, it's just done in such a way that is that further enforces this idea that the people who wrote these shows are clever bastards. All of them did such a phenomenal job with the writing and it comes across in not just the characters' lines, but when you're breaking down episodes and you're looking at what happened, how they got out of it, (laughs) what the fuck is going on, and that it's all presented in this fun way. Oh, man, I love those two episodes so much. Okay, Marty, you wanted to talk about Danny Patrol. I do. I well, also fuck, just, we all want to talk about Danny Patrol. Yeah, well, guys, we <laughs> should, right? That one. Um, I just want to go back really quick about uh, Paw Patrol, where it's also we get Jane's, uh, not Jane's, excuse me, we get R- Rita starts to get some real development here as she oh, is God, unable yeah. to save somebody, and she tried, and she fails. It's just, 
it's heartbreaking the way that happens and it's oh she did a great job displaying like that emotion of like i went out of my comfort zone i did what you guys wanted me to do and a kid died not just somebody a child and when you learn more about her personal story going forward you know how fucked up that is yeah yeah it it was around this time yeah like it was around this time where you really really start to appreciate her her acting skills as well for april probably I, I was just, uh, yeah, because I rewatched uh, the shows I wanted to talk about, depending on how deep we wanted to go. And let me tell you why I really love Danny. Um, Danny, the uh, non-binary, genderqueer street, uh, who is telepathic and can move things around, is a wonderful character <laughs> who can do, who adds to the narrative of the show in ways that you know, you have to read and pay attention to actually comprehend. Danny is great. Don't get me wrong. The residents, the Dannysons, I forgive the pun. Dannysons, they're wonderful. But there's one, one reason why I loved the show. And I am not a fan of musicals usually. And I don't, like Roger, people burst into song. Like, I don't get it. Um, Like, but this, there's a karaoke scene where, uh, to keep the party going, because as long as Danny is happy and feeling good, then he can survive. Uh, they can, excuse me, they can survive. Their positive energy keeps Danny alive. Right. Positive energy keeps Danny alive, so they have to keep the party going. So they do a karaoke scene, and they play a goddamn banger by Kelly Clarks, which I then immediately downloaded and <laughs> have been listening to. Because Kelly Clarkson is also a genius. Let's go there. But like they do this gorgeous dance scene and Larry's able to, Captain Trainer is able to get up and be himself for a little bit and still shuts it down. It's like the, it's almost like he is denying himself. I think it's like the third episode in a row where he's like, no, 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 fine. I'm in, I'm there. I'm finally, he comes to, Ter- begins. This is the beginning of his coming to terms yep, with his, himself. So, uh, but that song, it's um. Oh my God! Why am I blanking on it? Hold on, it's literally right here on my phone. But what I I just I thoroughly enjoyed the the song and the dancing together and how everybody's together. People like us, uh, from the spoken word part to the scene where we see Captain Trainer in a tux dancing with uh morally corrupt mm-hmm. which is also probably not my favorite drag name like probably my favorite it, it's just and, and the willingness of morally corrupt to sacrifice herself for the rest of the Dannysons, and then captain trainer steps up it's guys uh, it's hard to describe this show except when you get down to it it's all about you know, people coming to terms with themselves and the families that they have chosen and then what they choose to do. I, and this is the episode for me that made that sink clearly. This was an important episode for me because Danny in the comics was always super important um, because of who I am and my proclivities uh, and seeing that in a comic book, like the idea of having like cross-dress genderqueer stores, like gun shops with dolls, uh, and pink curtains and lace uh, and stuff like that. And it was just normal. It was safe. It was a haven. And I was actually very concerned when I started watching Doom Patrol if they would actually do Danny the Street. And when they did, 
that was another episode where I had a friend who was a holdout and I, and I loved him. He's a great guy, uh, huge comic nerd, loves all the weird stuff like that. And, and we're gaming buddies and, and we've known each other for a long time. He wasn't sold on even trying to watch on a free trial uh, the episodes of Doom Patrol until he saw me tweet, holy fuck, they actually did Danny the Street and it's perfect. And immediately he zoned in and he went, he's like, I'm sorry, I waited. Uh, but Danny is so important. And I'm, I'm, they give you a slight nod to at the end of Danny's arc when everything gets resolved to something that happens in the comic books. And I'm wondering if we'll get an, a, more of that in the future because Danny the stream in the comics becomes Danny the world. Uh, he actually enters this nexus between the fucking DC multiverse and starts taking in misfits from every universe period. And it's because of the stuff the Doom Patrol did that he felt capable of doing this and went and did it. And you can see shards of that in the episodes. You can see when his character arc sort of comes to an end, he's like, no, it's time for me to step up a little bit. I, I can't just run away from everything. I, I need to do more. And it's great because Danny is such an important and wonderful character. Oh, that's that would be super great. I didn't oh. read a ton of the comic books. And so a lot of the stuff for this was a surprise for me kind of thing. I wasn't expecting it. And so, like again, I can't stress enough to people, like, you're throwing things right from the get-go. This is swallowed up by a donkey, an eye in the fucking sky. Like, there's a therapy session where Admiral Whiskers, a rat, <laughs> is chewing uh, Brendan Fraser's character's head. <laughs> Brain. Well, he should have killed his mother. He so yeah, have. there's there's that kind of insanity, and then comes Danny the Street. It's a sentient street, and it's so such an a weird concept, but it was so well done in in the episode that you're like, fuck, I want to live on that street. It was beautiful and inclusive and, and encourage people to be who they are and and everything it was just so well bloody done and not in never at any point in a hokey kind of way it just was presented as this is a utopia a traveling mm -hmm. utopia it's only one street long but if you can stay here it's great yeah and it it even more so like the evolution like when you were talking about uh, I can't remember the agent's name before he became uh, his drag Sona. Uh, but when he got there and was there originally as the Department of Normalcy, uh, which didn't exist in the comics, it was men from nowhere in the comics, um, which I'm still confused why they didn't just do that. But he was sent in to infiltrate the street, find it, and give them a location. And he starts as an enemy and within minutes of stepping onto the street, he's welcomed. Danny says, you're safe here. You can be who you really are. Because Danny is in tune with all of the emotions and inner thoughts of every citizen. And that's how it's displayed. And there's like this moment of he takes off his hat and he just cries because it's like he's home. And it's like this perfect moment of this is this is why Danny's important. Uh, Derek yeah. Johnson. Thank you. Okay, let's move on from Danny, though. We're going to touch on um, 
I, I think my favorite episode was Jane Patrol. And I, there's just so many good things about it. Joe, go ahead. So Jane Patrol is a very important episode as well, um, specifically because you get to learn about Jane and her personalities and how things sort of work. So Jane's catatonic at this point um, after snapping in Danny Patrol, um, and she's dragged into the underground. So basically no personalities are displaying. She's completely comatose. Uh, so the underground pulls her back. They have pulled her down to essentially answer for her crimes like question mark they want to restore order uh jane doesn't want to be the dominant personality anymore and you learn that there always must be a dominant personality there's somebody that has to always be driving um and there is a person driver eight who looks very much like jane acts very much like regular jane you know ushers those personalities back and forth back and forth and the team while this is going on the team is arguing what to do about it and they're standing around her body, and until eventually Larry's negative spirit just jumps out of Larry's body, shoves his hand into Cliff's head, touches Jane's head, and sends Cliff's consciousness into the underground, uh, where Cliff gets beat up by Hammerhead and Driller Bill, uh, who we didn't see Driller Bill before this, which is great. And these are all not played by Diane here. These are all different actresses uh, or actors, as the case needed to be. Um and you find out uh, that there is the personality Karen, the one that we talked about before, is in a jail cell uh, where Cliff gets taken to. Uh, she gets let go before Cliff. And then you have Penny Farthing, the small, timid uh, English girl uh, who breaks, helps Cliff break out and leads Cliff through Jane's memories. And you start to see all these things that formed the splintered psyche of Jane. Uh, and it is ridiculous. Uh, and I should mention throughout this that I believe Cliff is in Cliff form right now throughout most of this. He doesn't turn the robot until later. Both of them at different times. I, I yeah. yeah. Um, but then they get to a point where Cliff is... Jane's, Jane's being sent to uh, the three sisters, which are... She goes there trying to ask for advice. What should I do? What should I do? What should I do? So the sisters say, go to the well. Um, Penny knows this as to be a death sentence for that personality. This is not the first time a dominant personality has not wanted to deal with the complications of the real world because the real world is scary. The real world is complicated. Relationships are complicated. People are complicated. Everything sucks. I don't want to deal with this anymore. So they send her to the well. There's a intermediary. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the personality here, uh, but it's basically... A manifestation of Jane's darkest jail cells of her brain. She guards the well. And as Jane gets to the well, she gets to her deepest, darkest, seated memory. And it's never explicitly shown, thankfully. Yeah. But it is heavily implied that the reason for Jane's splintered personality is that she retreated into herself because her father started sexually abusing her after her mother died. And the scene is her uh, coloring in her room and her dad comes home and basically tells her, you're coming with me. And it's this horrifying moment that I can't imagine anybody who's gone through this trauma uh, possibly was able to sit there. I can't. They had, They probably had to get up and walk away and I completely understand that. 
I, I know that there are parents that saw this scene and were so struck by it uh, that they had to take a break. And that's understandable. This is a very, very heavy scene. But then you see Cliff break through because he's no longer Cliff anymore. He's not a man. He's a robot man. And so he can pass because no man can pass into the deepest, darkest recesses of Jane's brain because, of course not. A man caused this all to happen in the, to begin with. He helps Jane confront this darkest memory, this fear, this, this sort of apotheosis point of the entire character and not become good with it, but learn, I can survive this. I can be more than this. And at the end of it, Cliff leaves the underground with Jane and Jane wakes up. And then she basically hits Cliff and walks away. It's it was fucking brilliant. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was br- like I after watching the episode, I was racking my brain trying to think of the last time that I saw a show that dealt with mental illness with with such an inventive way of of portraying it that is also so telling and so true and so so well done and i i mean we we love legion as well i fucking adore it and like the first season the stuff that they did while he's in in the sand brilliant stuff adored it and then you could look back to a whole bunch of different shows but there was something about this episode that just struck me Every facet of it was so well thought out and and respectful to the the notion of what what's happening. You know, it, it didn't belittle or mock her. It for didn't this. make light of it, it didn't, at all. It, at all, it was throughout it all just beautifully written. And the stuff with Cliff, and like you said, he's not a man, and so that's why he could pass. Fucking brilliant. Like, I know they wrote it like that. So they, they they made their own brilliance, but it was brilliant. And it came across just beautifully in, in on the screen. It, it, by so, that point, we're already getting um, tied to the characters a little bit and kind of invested in them. And the stuff with Cliff and, and Jane, we do care. It didn't take long, and by this point especially, you're like, you're on board for them. It's like, come on, just just let him help you a little bit. Come on. And this entire episode was just, uh, 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 you know, telling your fans, we heard you here. Enjoy. This is just going to be beautiful beginning to end. And one thing I will say is, uh, and they talked about this in the Brendan Fraser interview, um, so the writer for this episode, and I'm, I'm going to probably murder the, uh, the names, uh, Marcus Dalzine, um, he doesn't have a whole lot under his belt uh, as far as like what you would expect for sort of like this big epic writing, but you could tell that this in particular uh, was just something that he poured himself into, but also listened to the cast and listened to the people that were like, this is how you do it while being respectful. And that, that was absolutely well done. Uh, and the director, Harry, Jirjan, Jirjan. Um, he's been around, around for a while. He's written for The Flash. He's written for Supergirl. He's written for Riverdale uh, and all these other shows, but also like Gossip Girl. And you could see where directing those 
lended itself well to here because he understands the superhero dynamic. But then you go through his other stuff, he understands the drama dynamic. He understands the trauma dynamic. And the way that it was done and the way that it was uh, directed was just perfect. See, I, so, funny enough, I was just having a conversation with, um, with Karen and Tristan about this kind of thing because I was saying how for the Berlantiverse, how much I adore seeing the episodes directed by Kevin Smith. Because it's not about, in any show directed by anybody, the fanfare of the superheroics that are happening, but rather the intimate conversations between people. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Smith does brilliantly. So you see that in those episodes. So this is the same kind of thing where somebody understands that that's what is most important to people. So just really quick, when I was in college, uh, the abnormal psych class that I had to, had to take as part of my major uh, was the second most popular class on campus because all of the theater people wanted to attend the abnormal psych class to figure out how to write their characters. And um, it was generally accepted that that was just a tokenistic bullshit you know, way to take your mental illness and tropify it and do it, which is why when you are playing with disassociative identity disorder, one of the most controversial, you know, types of mental illness uh, that has ever been portrayed, and they do it well, that screams how much care that they put into this and to the way they approach the trauma aspect as well. Like, I don't do therapy anymore. I am teaching people about trauma-informed care, and if I could like nail like one tenth of what they pull off um, in Doom Patrol when it comes to this particular episode, like I would be, you know, doing my job extraordinarily well. It was just as a person who is who suffers vicarious trauma and has seen trauma firsthand and has watched people with DID work through life, this was very well done. Okay, we're going to skip over some episodes now because we are running a little bit long. Marty, I'm going to let you choose because you were going to talk about either Flex Patrol or Penelope. We need to stop soon is what I'm saying. Penelope Patrol. It was going to be you or me that couldn't pronounce Penelope Patrol. By this late an idea is me. So which one do you want to talk about? Let's do Penelope Patrol. So the previous episode, we find Flex Mantello, who is like this the secret to getting uh motherfucker you can't go back and talk about flex i told you I'm to choose one <laughs> you're you're trying to have your cake and eat it too <laughs> yes i am but all i was going to do Asshole. is talk about how you have to say where you get flex mentalo so you can one talk about sending them into the white space which is the pa- which is the paneling in between the the, the the pages and also about his muscle flex causing everyone on danny's on in Danny to orgasm, except for poor Cliff, who has to fake his, um, yep. which was also just. <laughs> um, but that's actually the. This is what penultimate patrol is. They go in to go confront um, Mister Nobody, and what I love about this is that we get uh, every character is given the choice to redo their life, and they all choose. No, I've become a better person from what I have done, uh, Cliff who we see banging the nanny. Uh, Rita can go back to acting. 
uh, Larry can go be with his lover. Uh, Jane can choose to live a safe life in an institution. I find that incredibly interesting because what she's choosing instead of normalcy and stability in a really traditional sense, she is choosing to embrace the uh, her fractured psyche, which is kind of a difficult thing to wrap your brain around, but that's what they all choose. Uh, we also see um, the, as Cyborg shows up, they beat Mr. Nobody, and then uh, Niles Calder is tortured with the repeated death of the Doom Patrol to uh, one of the Mr. Nobody's robots, which uh, his... In new and different ways each time. Yes, which was also phenomenal. Like, because if it was done the same way each time, you would be like, okay, this is getting old. But vary it up each time, the way they die, just shows that, you know, how devious Mr. Nobody is and also just how brilliantly it was done because it never got, I mean, you knew right away from the way the episode was structured that they're still there, but they just played up on the whole, you're in the white space, you're in the negative place, this is what's going on. It was a phenomenal uh, way of setting up the final confrontation with Mr. Nobody. It was a, the great way of like exposing the villain of the series, um, which is something else that Doom Patrol and the X-Men have in common that maybe the, the leader of both teams is actually the villain the whole time, which is an interesting concept. Um, you know, don't trust Charles Xavier. He turned children into soldiers. Like it's the same kind of thing. <coughs> cough, um, onslaught, cough. All we're saying. So, but it was beautifully done. Uh, I really dug how uh, the Doom Patrol comes together and they're going to go on this adventure and then they die. And then they come together and Niles Calder has to put it together that, oh no. I also just want to make a quick nod. Uh, Joven Wade, who plays Cyborg, is Mr. Nobody in this time. Um, and is playing and gets to monologue as Mr. Nobody for a bit. And you just watch his body language and his gestures change. And he becomes Mr. Nobody, um, even though he's a totally different actor. It was just great. So that is going to wrap it up before we go. Just any parting thoughts? Because, again, there's a lot. We didn't even touch on the Beard Hunters. <laughs> we or Von uh, Fuchs. There's so much that happens in here. But just very quickly, we'll start with you, Joe. My parting thought on this series is watch it. If you haven't signed up for the DC Universe thing, you get a free week of it. You can binge this, and you'll want to binge this. Do it. It's worth it. Even if you don't want to give them any money after that, do yourself a favor. Uh, it's smart. It's funny. It's uh, all the feels in the right places. This is how a superhero drama should always be done with this type of care, this type of, of reverence uh, and the right amount of comedy to make it uh, not so heavy that it just sits in your stomach like a, a three-day-old bagel. Uh, it's, it's something that I think has something for everybody. And I have never advocated for a TV show as much as I've advocated for this one. Watch it, give them hits, let's get more seasons. I think it's... It's important to point out to folks too, because if you've, if you've by and large your experience has with with uh, superheroes has been with the Berlanti verse, but the traditional one, your Supergirl, your your Flash and Arrow, and and even maybe Legends of Tomorrow yeah. kind of thing, those are pretty clean and tame. 
compare to Doom Patrol. And I understand that's saying a lot. I watch them all. I get it. Trust me, Doom Patrol is different. And mm -hmm. it's great that we live in a time where it can exist. You know, the, that first season ain't going anywhere. We can watch it in 10 years because we haven't watched it in a while. We feel like just having fun and watch it again. So I love that we live in a time because of these streaming services and because they're willing to take chances with characters and, and push the envelope in a way that can be perceived at, despite the insanity being more believable. And, and it's fantastic. I, I, I love that, you know, this is out and the prospect of a second season. Oh, fuck, bring it. Oh, forgetting one uh, brought to you also with help from HBO, which is yep. super good. Nice. I didn't know that. It, it, yeah. HBO and Max will have it as well. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. It was like just announced earlier today. So Marty, what about you? Parting thoughts? Parting thoughts. Uh, this elevates the comic book in so many weird, wonderful and disturbing ways. Totally worth the subscription fee for DC universe. This show alone, it, it would be worth, um, if you could buy each episode for two bucks, you'd still be, um, if you bought each episode for 10 bucks, you'd still be getting this at a whoa, total steal. Whoa, 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 Jesus. <laughs> 10 bucks an episode. No, no, no. 10 bucks. It's a little excessive, but it is still well worth your time to watch. And right, 10 to, bucks uh, Canadian, would that be better? Not for me. For you, All maybe. Right, fair enough. Oh, it, for me, it'd be fucking great. It's, uh. It's a great show. It's a phenomenal show. We we really enjoy Titans. We like the new take, what they were doing, and the, the way that they were interpreting the characters and stuff like that. Same. We adored it. It was great. It doesn't fucking hold a candle to Doom Patrol. Agreed. Not uh, even close. And again, that's not putting down Titans. It was a great show. The acting was good. The interactions between characters were good. It was a fun show to watch. This is... It's the best damn TV show running right now. Well, again, we can agree to disagree on that, but it is definitely one that we were looking forward to every single episode to watch and, and absolutely adored it. It was, I don't want to say faultless, but honestly, damn near. I am. I adored all of it. So with that, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me tonight. You can find the show notes at popcornronin.com. We'll be back next week. We've got a couple of interesting episodes coming up, not the least of which going to be Marty and I are going to sit down and talk about Star Trek Discovery, which I'm oh, really yeah. looking forward to it because I love talking about fucking Star Trek. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. Again, boys, thanks for coming out. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me out of my cage, guys. Bye-bye.